let's, uh, let's once again get, give it up for Greg Luce and Stephen Garrett. And you guys can, can grab a seat. So let's pray. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that as you bless the worship, you would bless the word. And we pray that none of us would be the same and we would all leave transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, open it with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I am excited about what we're going to be talking about today. 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, so before we roll into 1 Peter chapter 2, I just want to read a verse from Joshua. Joshua chapter 4, verse 21 through 22. And it reads, In the future, when your descendants or your children ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them. Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. Now, this is a really awesome passage because I, I was here at the Jordan River, and, and we walked in it, we walked across it, we, we prayed in it, and uh, what was really awesome about it was that when you're walking across the Jordan River, you had to be very careful how you, how you walked, otherwise you would easily fall over because there's so, so many stones of different sizes all throughout the Jordan River. And God told his people to walk across the Jordan River, but it was at high tide. There was a strong current. It would knock them all down. Many people would drown. But they had the Ark of the Covenant, and God had a leader from each of the tribes. And they stepped forward, these 12 people holding the Ark of the Covenant. And as soon as their feet entered the water, then the waters split, and they walked across on dry ground on these stones that they had to be kind of careful about how they walked across. And then the entire nation walked behind them. And then Joshua commanded, and this is really awesome because as, as I was walking through the Jordan on all these rocks and you had to be careful how you walked, I thought of this very verse about how Joshua then said, go back and everybody, a leader from every tribe, get a stone from the Jordan and then pile it up here so that when people see this mountain of stones and they ask, what do these stones mean? You can tell them how God provided for us. You can tell them how God is miraculous. You can tell them how God is all loving and all powerful and all faithful and all present with his people because they will see this mountain of stones. And when they do, they're going to ask, why are these stones? stones here, and it's going to be a memorial, or it's going to be a monument where you can testify to God's faithfulness in our lives. And this one verse speaks to many things. One, it speaks to, as I touched on last week, parents, grandparents, guardians, we have awesome children's workers, we have awesome youth workers, but it is your primary responsibility to teach your kids about Jesus Christ. It's your primary responsibility to grow them up so that they know how to have a quiet time. I'm hoping to take 40 kids to camp. I'm hoping to teach them uh, how, to, how to walk with Christ. I've been teaching them the, the, the books of the Bible on Wednesday night. I have a passion for that. Uh, many, many kids don't know the difference between King Saul or Saul of Tarsus. I'm teaching them those things. But guess what? Though I'm a pastor, that's not my responsibility. It's your responsibility as a parent. These children in your household ought to know how to walk with Christ. They ought to know the books of the Bible. They ought to have them memorized. They ought not to be intimidated when somebody says go to Psalms. They ought to know where that is. And they ought to know how to have a daily relationship with the Lord by opening up the Word because they see you do it every single morning or every single evening. And they see you perhaps enter into that time of the Lord with anxiety, but they see you walk out of that time of the Lord with peace. And then 
there ought to be times that you sit down with your kids and tell your kids how you go about your relationship with Christ, how you get into the Word every day, and how they should not be dependent upon a pastor or an evangelist for their time in the Word, because you've taught them, so they don't have to be spoon-fed by me once a week, but you teach them every single day through your example, and then some concentrated time you teach them. Children ought to ask their parents, what do these stones mean? How come we worship God? How come you have peace? How come you still pray? And then you ought to be able to express to them, out of the outflow of your relationship with Christ, God's faithfulness. In the future, when the descendants or the children ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. And this mountain of stones was a memorial. It was a monument. We have memorials and we have monuments today. You've seen the memorial, I believe it's in, uh, uh, it's in Washington, in I think Virginia County of the, uh, the, the, the Marines and, and the memorial of the picture that was taken at the Battle of Iwo Jima in 1945 where the Marines are, the six Marines are lifting the flag. It's this majestic memorial that a constant reminder that freedom is a gift to us from God through the previous generation and, and we shouldn't take it for granted but it's a gift that we give to our next generation and they're going to have to fight for to give it to their next generation. Freedom is, is, is something that we can never take for granted and that's what that memorial represents every generation has to afresh fight for their freedom and fight to perpetuate freedom. Uh, There's uh, beautiful memorials in Hawaii and Honolulu honoring the soldiers who fought in the Pacific and and the the, the invasion of Pearl Harbor. Uh, We have many memorials in our nation. The, The memorial, the monument of the Statue of Liberty saying, you know, all the weary and burdened in the world come to these harbors and and there's freedom and opportunity. Uh, our, Our nation has memorials. Uh, Deborah, could we throw this picture up, please? I thought that this was a very striking memorial. Um, This is actually, it's the same kind of uh, philosophy as that we saw in Joshua chapter 4, where there was a story. The children of Israel crossed the, the, uh, the Jordan, and God caused the waters to part. And so they built up rocks. And that was a monument. And those rocks told a story. And anytime children said, what are these rocks for? They told a story. And so when, when here in the United States we see the, the statue of the Marines lifting the flag or the Statue of Liberty, then children should ask, what is this for? And it allows us to tell a story. Well, this, these rocks are called dead stones. Because they were actually constructed and raised, not by the uh, Hebrew people, but by the Canaanites. And they were raised to tell a story. But these rocks are quiet. Archaeologists call them dead stones. Dead stones because nobody knows why they were erected and constructed and raised. Nobody knows. So they don't tell a story. We just know the Canaanites were there, and we know that they were supposed to say something, but they're dead stones because they're silent the story has been lost and they don't say anything 
which with that as the backdrop, let's now read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Peter writes to us, you yourselves like living stones, not dead stones, living stones. When people see us, we ought to tell a story. People ought to know what Jesus did in our lives. Your kids ought to know what Jesus did in your life. Your co-workers ought to know what Jesus did in your life. And if you don't tell the story, then you're dead stones, a lot like the Canaanite stones. Which is why we are living stones. We speak, we talk, we, we, we share what God has done in our lives. And so we are a monument to God's faithfulness. We are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So as we continue this series called Zealous, I want to talk about being zealous to be a living stone. Thank you, Deborah. So the first, uh, the first principle that we draw from this passage in First Peter chapter two, in terms of being zealous to be a living stone, zealous to be a monument that declares God's faithfulness, zealous to tell a story that causes your children to want to follow Christ, zealous to testify in a manner that your family believes in Christ. Living stones are passionate to tell his story. And I love this play on words, history, where you can break history down into two words, and history is his story. All of history is his story of how God relates with his people. Living stones are passionate to tell his story. Verse 9 and 10 of chapter 2, and we read, but you are a chosen race. And this isn't talking about the Hebrews. This is talking about followers of Jesus Christ. We're a new creation. We are children of God. And we are a chosen race. That race may be Hebrews. It might be um, Gentiles. It might be black. It might be white. It might be rich. It might be poor. We all are equally sinners. But when we come to Christ, we are all equally saved by the grace of God and the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the race, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the church, a people for his own possession, that you may, be, that you may proclaim the excellence. This is it. Living stones are passionate to proclaim that you may, as the church... As stones, let's make sure we are living stones, not dead stones, that we may be passionate to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Isn't that beautiful? We are passionate to proclaim the excellencies, the majesty, the glory, the grace, the stories of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, once we were a dead stone, not a living stone, but a dead stone, once we were not a people. And I love this play on words, a living stone, because even a tree in some extent is alive, but a stone is dead. A stone is the most inadamant thing that, that, that you can imagine. A stone is as dead as it gets. And we read in Ezekiel chapter 36 that God, through the Spirit of Christ, removed from us 
a heart of what? Stone. And he gave us a heart of flesh, of spirit. And he caused us to follow him. And if you are a born-again child of God, if you're a Christian, if you're heaven-bound, then you were a dead stone. Now you're a living stone. And we should all be passionate to proclaim his excellencies of what he's done in our lives. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so, you, just like me, were a dead stone, and now we're a living stone, but are we proclaiming His excellencies? Last week, when we were talking about insula, we talked about Sabbath, or Shabbat, that takes place in Israel at sunset, and the stores are closed, and if you're hungry, you better eat good before sundown on Friday when Sabbath begins, because stores close, and it's hard to get good food after Sabbath. And they don't reopen until sunset on Saturday, and they take it so seriously, and they gather together, they gather their families together, and they have cookouts, they have games, but it's Sabbath, it's a time that you spend with your families, and it's a time that you pour into your families the excellencies of Christ, and are you doing that? Now you, the Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we rightfully worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, when Jesus rose from the grave. But I believe that we all should incorporate a Sabbath into our lives. From one sunset to the next, when you rest and you assemble with family, and you commune with Christ, and you teach your kids how to walk with Christ, and you proclaim Christ's excellencies so that their faith grows. And his kids might go through a season of doubt, as all kids should. Because there must come a time in everybody's life when they embrace their faith as their faith, not simply their parents' faith. And so we all have to go through seasons of doubt. We all have to go through seasons of difficulty. We all have to go through seasons of struggle. That's not bad, that's good. But when they're going through these seasons, and they may go through a doubt storm, they may say, I don't know if the Bible is real or not, but this much I know, my dad believed it was so. I don't know if Jesus hears and answers my prayers or not, but this much I know. My grandmother believes that Jesus hears and answers my prayers. And this is what I long for the youth. They may go through a doubt storm. Uh, We have many of our youth who are walking with Jesus and serving in ministry. Some kids have really entered into seasons of struggling. And if they do have doubt storms and they say, I don't know if Jesus loves me or not, but I know that Pastor Shane knows that Jesus loves me, and it's real to him. And that's because we can't be dead stones. There's a saying, I want to preach the gospel everywhere I go and use words only where possible. I know that's speaking of a life of character, and let's not let our conduct contradict our testimony. And there's value in that, but it can also be used as a cop-out, just to walk like a good moral citizen. And people kind of guess that we're followers of Christ. No, we are to proclaim Christ's excellencies. Not only of how he delivered us from darkness into marvelous light, but we are also to proclaim his excellencies of how he gave us strength today, how he gave us joy today, how we're no longer battling anxiety, how he's allowed us to subdue addictions. And the list goes on and on and on. How he answered a prayer this week, how he provided for us this month, and the list continues. Living stones are passionate to tell his story to everyone, everywhere. Secondly, living stones are passionate to know and obey God's word. Verse 11, 
we read, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners. We're not to get too comfortable here. We're sojourners. We're pilgrims. When I go camping, I don't, I don't bring my couch and my, my huge oak coffee table. I don't bring my bed. That would be nonsense. I'm camping. I'm only going to be there for a few days. I'm in a tent. I, I pack real light. I don't get too comfortable, and I look forward to coming home. And in the same way, we're sojourners. Let's not get too, in fact, let's, I was going to say let's not get too married to the American dream, but let's completely divorce the American dream, shall we? And let's live for home. Let's live for heaven. Let's live for eternity. Let's not get too comfortable here. We are soldiers. We're just camping. And only for a little while longer. And we're exiles. And therefore, in not getting too comfortable, we should abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Did you know that? The passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. In other words, there's a real reason that you don't have joy in your life if you're indulging the passions of the flesh There's a real reason you don't have joy in your life. And it's not because you need more counseling or more medication. And I'm I'm not saying there's not a place for those things. There certainly can be. But if you're indulging the passions of the flesh, you will not have joy and peace and love and the fruits of the Spirit. Because we just read, and it's true, perhaps you can testify, I can, that the passions of the flesh indeed wage war against our soul. The peace, joy, and love in our soul. Therefore, we must develop a greater passion for God's will, God's ways, God's word, than our own instincts. Whatever those instincts may be. We must have a greater passion for God's word than our instincts. And if we don't have a passion to know God's word, it's because we have a greater confidence or a greater desire for our instincts. And if we don't have a conviction to trust and obey God's word, to not simply know it, but to trust and obey God's word, it's because we think that we know best. Our first question in any decision should always be, what is God's will in the matter? Are you going to move across town? What is God's will? Are you going to take another job? What is God's will? Are you going to go to this church or that church? What is God's will? Are you going to serve in this ministry or not? What is God's will in the matter? Our passion must primarily be God's will. And the reality is, God's word is clearly outlined. His will is clearly outlined in Scripture. There's some very clear, succinct things that we know are the will of God. For example, in many places it says, uh, it is God's will that you should not commit sexual immorality. It is God's will that you should do this. It is God's will that you should do that. And if we are out of the very clear will of God, I mean, we know it. It's black and white. It's clear cut. It's as clear as day. We know it's God's will, but we're not walking in it. Then we are confused in every other area of our life. But if we are clearly walking in what we know to be God's will, and we're seeking Him, and we have a relationship with Him, then we have conviction in our steps, and we have discernment in our steps. Rather than doing what is right in our own eyes, we seek to do what is right in God's eyes. Now let's contrast. Let's let's take a little case study of Samson and Josiah. Samson had a passion to indulge his flesh. We know his story well. 
And this wasn't a guy, I think, who just had an issue with lust. This was a guy who had a really wounded heart. He's a really interesting character to study. So Samson, he ultimately, through his woundedness, was just uh, on a mission to, uh, to probably uh, anesthetize his pain. And so he did whatever was right in his own eyes, whatever gave him an escape at the moment. Josiah was a young guy that had a passion for God's will. Any idea how old Josiah was when he became king? About seven years old. And when we were about to pick up, Josiah's about 17 years old. We read of Abraham being called at 75 years old, Noah at 120. All that to say you are never too young and you are never too old to passionately follow Christ. In fact, interestingly, how old do you think the average disciple of Jesus was? You know, Jesus was, was, was walking around, you know, Capernaum and, and Israel with these 12 guys following him, these fishermen that had various backgrounds. Uh, any guesses? What was the average age of one of Jesus' disciples? Just throw it out there. Anybody? What? 20? 30? Uh, I asked the youth the other night, and they said 60, 50? Um, you know, you see a Jesus movie, and, and you might be led to think that. Um, the average age of one of Jesus' disciples was probably about 15 years of age. Probably 15. When uh, the, 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 the officials came and asked Jesus uh, and Peter to pay taxes, and Jesus said, go down to the fish. He told Peter, pull some money out of its mouth. It was a miracle. It was awesome. But out of all of Jesus' disciples, only Jesus and him, out of Jesus and all of his disciples, only two had to pay taxes, and that was Jesus and Peter. Peter was married. The only one that we know for sure that was married. He's probably 20 years of age. Uh, Jesus, we know, was 30. And we know from ancient history that you didn't have to pay taxes until you were 20. So that would lead us to believe that Jesus' disciples had finished school. So they're probably about 14, 15 years age, uh, of age. Anywhere from 15 to, to 18 years of age on average. Which is why their ministry after Christ lasted a long time before they were, they were finally killed and martyred. All that to say, don't wait. Teens, don't wait until you're 60 to get passionate about following in the footsteps of Christ. He wants to change the world through you now. Don't, don't wait until you're 50. Don't wait until you're 30. Don't wait until you're 20 to begin following Christ. He's given you a gift now. He wants to change the world through you now. He wants to bring glory into himself and hope to the world through you now. Jesus' disciples were probably roughly around the age of 15 and 16. Josiah, that we're about to read about, became king when he was seven. And he was one of the greatest kings in history. And he led his nation into revival, as we'll see, when he was 17 years of age. And he was following Christ because he had a passion. Josiah had a passion to know what God's will was and to follow that will. Unlike Samson, who had a passion to ease the pain in his heart by satisfying the flesh, it was a temporary escape. But let's contrast Samson's passion and Josiah's passion. Uh, Samson... His name means son of light. He had a miraculous birth. It was glorious. It was miraculous. There was a call upon his life. Samson lived in a culture. He lived in an era where, and I quote, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone, watch this, did what was right in his own eyes. Nobody asked what is right in God's eyes. Nobody asked what does God want, what is God's will. They all did whatever they want. They, they all did whatever they thought was best. Nobody says what does God think is best in this culture. And this is the area that son of light, Samson, was born 
And unfortunately, instead of reflecting the God who called him, he reflected the culture that he was to transform. Judges 14.3, we see this, this propensity of Samson. He saw a girl and he said, get her for me. Watch this. She's right in my eyes. Those are his words. He told his dad, get her for me. She's right in my eyes. I don't care what God says. I don't care what you and mom say. She's right in my eyes. Get her for me. And that was the theme throughout Samson's entire life. Judges chapter 16, 1. And there he saw a prostitute with his eyes. He saw a prostitute over and over. Samson saw and he took. Whatever he saw, whatever he wanted, he took. Samson's entire ministry, he never prayed once. Did you know that? Not once. Until his eyes were already gouged out and he was a slave. And his very final prayer in which God indeed restore him. That was the only prayer that he ever prayed. That was it. Instead, his entire life and his entire ministry, he simply did what he wanted. He saw it and he took it. Interestingly, Delilah means darkness. So the son of light hooks up with darkness because whatever his eyes saw, he wanted and he took. So Judges 17, 21 reads, And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. The son of light who entered darkness, who never inquired of the Lord, but only did what was right in his own eyes, was eventually blinded. Did God restore him? Yes. But look at the damage he created. And look at the legacy that he left. It's because he never, he never inquired of the Lord. Why? Because he didn't care what the Lord said. He didn't care about God's desires or God's will for his life. And that's, a, that's an issue of the heart. Reality is, we can, we can dress up nice, we can smile nice, we can shake hands, and we can look spiritual, but that could be the reality of our heart. We don't pray because we don't care what God's will is. We don't ask for wisdom because we don't care what God's will is. We don't ask for wisdom in our tribulation that's developing us into the character of Christ because we don't care for God's wisdom. We just want out of the tribulation. So that we stop cursing God. But let's look at Josiah's heart. 2 Kings 22.8 And Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the secretary, and this is Josiah's team, King Josiah. He's right now about 17 years of age. To speak again to the reality, don't wait till you're 50. Don't wait till you're 60. Don't wait till you're 20 to start following Christ. Start following Christ now. You follow Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength now. You will be a leader among your peers, and you will be a leader among leaders. Don't wait. Now's the time. If you don't have a heart to follow Christ now when you're 15, why do you think that you will magically one day have a heart to follow Christ when you're 50? Now is the time to follow Christ with all of your heart and let Jesus glorify himself to you, through you. Let Jesus glorify himself through you and change the world through you. And God's call is on your life. If you heard that, if your pulse quickened, if your heart skipped a beat or so, that's the Holy Spirit. God's call is on you. He wants to use you to do great things for His glory. Let's look at King Josiah, 17 years of age. So the king's staff went into the house of the Lord. They went into the temple, and guess what they found? They found the Word of God. That's both refreshing and tragic. 
the word of God was lost. Nobody knew where the Bible was. The word of God was lost in this kingdom. Nobody knew where it was because nobody cared where it was. Iris, do you have your Bible with you? May I borrow that? Thank you. I guarantee you that word of God that was lost didn't look like this. Every single page is marked up. Every single word is written in and loved on. I'll guarantee you there is not a time in Ira's life that she doesn't know where the Word of God is. Do you know where the Word of God is in your house? Do you carry it? Do you bring it to church? Do you open it? I mean, there's no, there's no time in Iris's ever life that she ever doesn't know where this thing is. There's a saying, a Bible that's falling apart is a sign of a life that is being held together. But it was tragic. They, uh, they, they didn't know where the word was. For years, for generations, they found it. And they're like, what is this? They dusted it off. They took it to the king, King Josiah. He's 17. He's got a good heart. He's trying to follow Christ. He's trying to follow God. But how can you follow God without the word? Thy word is the lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How can you follow God without the word? We read in Psalm 119, I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. How shall a young man keep his way clean and walk in purity by taking heed according to your word? Thy word, thy word is my life. Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You guys know I'm telling the truth that you might get into your car and you're like, oh, my cell phone. You know where your cell phone is. You know when you lost your, your cell phone, but do you know where the word is? And is it being worn out because you're in it every single day? This was King Josiah's heart, but he didn't have the word because the word was lost. So he sent his team into the palace and they dusted it off and they found the word. And, and they brought the word back into the palace, and they began to read the word, and here's a 17-year-old guy, and his heart longs to please God with his life, and they begin to read the word. And when Josiah heard the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He stood up and he tore his clothes. Why? Because he realized... There are things in the word I'm not doing because I didn't know to do it. There's things that I'm doing that the word says don't do it, but I'm doing it because I didn't know that the word said to don't do it. And he was so angry because that wasn't only true of his life, that was true of his kingdom's life. So he heard the word and he saw the discrepancy between the word and his life, the word and his kingdom. And so he got up and he tore his clothes. Oh, It's not about reading the Word. It's about having a passion to do the Word, even if we don't agree with it, even if we don't like it, even if our instincts say something else. We defer to God's will and God's Word because He is God. We're not. He's our Creator, and we trust Him. And like Job said, though He slay me, yet shall I praise Him. But reality is, by heeding and obeying the word, he's going to bless us. And he's going to encourage us, and he's going to strengthen us. And this was just in time, in fact. 
because God was about to bring judgment upon Josiah's kingdom. And God saw how Josiah sought the word and longed for the word and repented when he heard the word. And God said, I'm going to hold off that judgment because your heart was penitent. And, you're, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard. And so the whole next chapter is reforms that Josiah brought about through his kingdom. Living stones are passionate to tell his story. Living stones are passionate to know and obey God's word. And then living stones are passionate for God's glory to shine among unbelievers. And in closing, we'll contrast Saul versus David. Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul's name was asked for because uh, Israel said, we want a king just like everybody else. The prophet Samuel was crushed. God said, look, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Here's a guy. This is what they're ask, asking for. They're asking a question out of the flesh. So let's, let's give them a king of, of the flesh. They're asking a question not in the spirit. So let's give them a king that's not in the spirit. They're, they're asking a, a, a request to look just like the rest of the world. So let's give them what the rest of the world has. A leader who leads and governs uh, out of human charisma. Saul was good looking. He was head and shoulders above the rest. You just look at him and you're like, that's a leader. That's a king. That's what they asked for. And Saul models to us something called partial obedience. I'll obey a little. But not all the way. Saul had an assignment. He was to go in and he was to wipe out a kingdom and everything in it, the livestock. Saul went in and he did almost everything, but he didn't wipe out all of the livestock. Now, he wiped out the sick livestock. He wiped out the livestock that was obviously about to die and that couldn't make the trip back and that nobody would want to buy. But he kept the best livestock. So the prophet caught up with Saul and he said, why have you disobeyed the Lord? And Saul said, look, I've done everything just as, as the Lord said. And then Saul said, then why do I hear this bleeding of sheep in my ears? It's partial obedience. And at that day, the kingdom was ripped from Saul. That reality wouldn't come to fruition for some years, but God's favor left Saul and landed upon David. And this was the heart behind partial obedience. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 9, Saul came to Carmel, Mount Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. It was self-preservation that drove King Saul unto partial obedience. It was self-exaltation that drove King Saul into partial obedience. Self-exaltation and self-preservation is the heart that drives us into partial obedience. But let's contrast that with David. So the favor left Saul and the favor landed on David. And David was anointed king. And we read that God writes about David. When he had removed him, Saul, he raised up David to be their king. David was anointed king again when he was about 17 years of age. In other words, it's never too late. What was it that God saw about David? Charisma? No. Good looks? No. Stature? No. This leadership persona? No. 
Did he seem to be the smartest one of his brothers? No. He had seven older brothers, and they all had a lot more of that stuff, a lot more of human charisma than David. Then what was it that God saw about David? When God saw David, he said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He's not after whatever looks good in his eyes. He's not after whatever he can dream up. He's after a man, after, God said, I found in David a man after my own heart, watch this, who will do all of my will, not partial obedience, all of my will. And just as self-exaltation and self-preservation drives us into partial obedience, the hunger for God's glory and a passion for God to be glorified amongst non-believers drives us into total obedience. Self-exaltation and self-preservation drives us into partial obedience. And a passion for God's glory to shine forth among unbelievers drives us into total obedience. When God saw David, he said, I have found a man after my own heart who will do all of my will. Was David perfect? No. The Bible is very real. The Bible is very honest. We read of some very big mistakes and moral failures in David's life. But instead of, like Saul, instead of trying to dance around it and excuse his conduct and minimize his sin, like Saul, as soon as David sinned, as soon as David was struck with the realization of his failure, he repented with his whole heart. So it's not about perfection. In doing God's will, because we all stumble every day. It's about passion to do His will. And it's about passion to do His whole will. And it's about passion for His glory and not ours. And that gives us the boldness, that gives us the courage to be obedient. Passion for God's glory gives us the courage to be obedient. And Greg, you could come on up and and closing out, uh, if if you'd even stand with me, please. we read in First Samuel chapter 17, all of you guys can, can stand with me, and we're about to consecrate our lives to the Lord and our hearts to the Lord. This culminates where this, this contrast between David and Saul, uh, I think the most stark contrast between the two was King Saul is right here with all of, all of his kingdom on this hill. And I was, I was here at this exact hill, and, and the Philistines are over here in this hill, and there's a valley in between them. And I was there at the valley. I was there where David got the five stones out of the brook in order to go kill Goliath. And I just say that to say to some of you teens, the Bible got its archaeology right. Whatever it says in here, if you go there today, even 3,000 years later, it's exactly as it said that it was. This book can be trusted. Uh, spiritually, absolutely, also archaeologically and historically as a side note. But I, I, I was here, and so the Israelites were here, and the Philistines were here, and there was a big valley in between them. And so Goliath, and I went to Goliath's hometown, man, it was jagged, it was harsh, everything was steep, it was hot, it was dry, it was sharp, it was jagged. That's where Goliath grew up. No wonder the guy was so tough and so Goliath would go down and, and he would stand in the valley and he would call out the children of Israel. Like if you've seen the movie Troy with Brad Pitt, you see how sometimes in that day uh, one person 
from each army would go forth and fight on behalf of the whole army, and that would, that would determine who won the day. And so Goliath would go forth through his army, and he would yell out to the children of Israel that, that their God is false, that their God is fake, that their God is powerless, that their God is nothing, and he would do it with all sorts of cursing. And do you know what King Saul and his army did? They shook. They trembled. They were scared. It was that sinking, sickening feeling where their heart just sank, you know, and their legs went weak. They had no boldness. They had no bravery. They had no courage. They were only seized with fear. And they probably felt nauseous as a result of it. And every day, Goliath would call out this army, and every day they were scared. This is where what human charisma will get you. Human charisma, relying on human intellect, it'll get you whatever you can do. And we are all going to face a giant that's larger than our ability. And he had, his, his confidence had reached the end of his ability. And then he couldn't do anything. Saul couldn't do anything. Asked for was exactly what they asked for, and it was nothing. He couldn't do anything because he wasn't functioning out of God's will and God's power, but out of his own will and out of his own strength. And there was now a giant that was bigger than his will and his strength. And then this shepherd kid that everybody overlooked went to the battlefield one day, and we just kind of read this very lightly. David went from where he was watching sheep, and he carried lunch to his brothers who were on the battle lines, and so he just kind of jogged to them and took them lunch. He jogged 15 miles away. These guys were like really in shape. They were just a whole different breed. And then when he gets there, he sees Goliath calling out the armies of Israel. He sees Goliath defying the glory and the character of God. And here's the thing. David's heart didn't sink. David wasn't filled with anxiety and fear. David was indignant and he was filled with passion and he was filled with courage because his greatest ambition in life was not self-preservation. It was not self-exaltation. His greatest ambition in life was God's glory to shine among unbelievers. That was his greatest ambition. So when he saw this, he didn't sink and he didn't cower. But as you guys know, he lined up to fight. And he was, when, he was eventually, when he eventually stood across from the Goliath, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, Saul, for the battle belongs to the Lord, and he will give you into our hands. You see David's passion? It was the glory of God to go forth among those who don't yet know God. That was his passion. And if you are given into self-preservation and self-exaltation, then you will eventually very soon fall into partial obedience. But if you champion the glory of God, then you will rise to the occasion and walk in total obedience to the word of God. Total obedience. So living stones are passionate to share his story. Living stones are passionate to know and obey God's word. They know where their Bible is. They know where their Bible is. And their Bible is getting worn out. 
And it's not just to read it and to say how nice, but it's to read it and do it. And if there's any discrepancy between God's will and God's word and their character, it grieves them. And they repent. And God blesses them. And living stones are passionate for God's glory to shine among unbelievers. Are you a living stone or are you a dead stone? And I would like to ask you to, to, to bring your heart to this. We, we, we use this stage as an altar. And to kneel and say, oh God, make me a living stone. So, would you bow your heads with me? How many of you want to be a living stone? Raise your hand high. Okay. Well, let's consecrate our heart to the Lord. And let's respond. The altars are open.